My name is Kim Weeks, and this is the Weeks Well. Hi, it's Kim Weeks. I just want to say how much I've missed you, how much I've missed doing this podcast, and how excited I am that Ty Powers, Sarah Powers' husband and mindfulness guide extraordinaire is the person to help me land this plane at the end of the year. I'll be addressing in a short podcast next week why I've taken this break um, and how glad I am to be back. I've had some um, pretty intense family issues that I've had to go offline to deal with, but now I'm back and I'm just so looking forward to you listening to this podcast and letting me know what you think. Ty Powers has been working in the mindfulness sphere, the yoga sphere, the Buddhist sphere for decades and decades alongside his wife, Sarah, and in his own specific way, which is why I was so excited that he was willing to come on and talk to me after Sarah came on this fall to talk about her path. Ty works for an organization called skillfulchange.org and is a change and transition strategist because, as he likes to say, change happens, but transitions are somewhat different. And he talks a lot about how modern life has encouraged this blurring of seasons, not just the actual ones that we experience in the atmosphere, but also the seasons of our lives and how the information age as part of that experience in modern life has caused us to misalign our bodies from our minds. You know, the mind, as he was, we were talking about, operates at the speed of light and the body doesn't. And so we face a lot of challenges and we talked a lot about the challenges that COVID brought up, that AI brings up, that life in modernity brings up for how we can continue to employ these long wisdom traditions to look inside of ourselves and uncover and recover parts of ourselves that we have shunted off to the side. You know, Sarah and Ty call this internal family systems, which is such an interesting concept and we explore really right off the bat in the podcast, in which you can imagine having this whole family inside of you and all these different personalities and stories that you treat differently based on what your external self, your ego self is needing to get done or accomplish in the world. And so this contemplative approach and these metaphors and these wonderful practices, Buddhist in particular, that Thai brings to bear, as usual, I learned so much from. I've just loved Thai's and Sarah's work the entire time that I've known them, which is now going on 20 years. And I can't wait for you to let me know what you think about this podcast. It feels to me like ah, just the best way to end this year and the best way to end the body of work that we've all put together in these greats coming to talk to me about their path of mindfulness, their path of wholeness, their path of truth. So here's Ty Powers. I can't wait for you to listen, and I'll be in touch next week with a short podcast to tell you about my year, my reflections on it, and my plans for 2024. Ty Powers, how nice to see you after about a decade. <laughs> nice to see you too, Kim. I'm, thanks for joining me. I was so happy when Sarah suggested we talk because as you know, in the times that she came to teach uh, within my communities in Washington, it was always so awesome to sit with you and be with you and listen to all of the work and practice that you are were doing and are doing. So when Sarah named and talked about your work, Change in Transitions, right? Change in Transitional yeah, Work. Yeah, yeah, good enough. Uh, I'll explain it later. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I thought, wow, that sounds like something that, first of all, listeners of this podcast would really want to dig into, and they would want to dig into that because all of us here in these conversations 
are on one level or another seekers, not just of the external world, like where is our place in it? What can we do to serve it? What kinds of, you know, so many people on this podcast are either longtime mindfulness, wisdom, or yoga teachers, but practitioners, if not also teachers, but also this sort of exploration of the inner world, which is what really caught my attention in both your description on the Skillful Change website, which looks like where you're doing a lot of your work now, but also in uh, Moffitt's work, who founded this Skillful Change website. So there's a lot there. I'm not quite sure where to start, but I think it would be really great to learn a little bit about your through line of practice and learning to now. Okay. Um, maybe just to start with what change and transition is in terms of definitions of that for Moffat's work and for me, it's the idea that, um, as you know, as a practitioner, in, in Buddhism, there's something called the three characteristics, the three marks of existence. And change is one of those. And so the recognition that no matter what, everything is fleeting, everything is, is moving. It's, uh, it's a great dynamic. It's in flux. And so if the change that we're either promoting or the change that shows up, as change does, is to our liking, there's no problem. We're, we're all uh, good with that. But so often, even as we try and promote a certain kind of change, that doesn't happen. So there's frustration there or something just kind of smacks us in, in the face, something like a death, um, a loss of a relationship, a job, uh, whatever it might be, a war. Um, certainly right now, as we're speaking, what's going on in uh, Palestine and, and Israel is breaking a lot of hearts, including mine. So there's a change that is about to affect the entire world. Clearly, it's starting there, but literally how things are breaking out, the world's going to have to change to respond to what's going on there. And so since change is, is inevitable, what do we do in the face of change, especially the kinds of changes that were thrust upon us that weren't of our design, that weren't welcome? And so... The idea is that things are always changing, but we're not always responsive to those changes. In fact, if the change, again, isn't to our liking, we're resistant. I don't want this. This shouldn't be here. There's a version that immediately arises with an unwanted change. And so the, the idea of change and transition is change happens. Transition doesn't. Tran transition really requires a change in attitude in order for the change to be skillful and of use or to make use of it in a more positive way. Because if we're pushing it back and going, this shouldn't have happened, why did this happen to me? All the various things we do. Um, yeah, that's so that in a nutshell, that's what change and transition is. Change happens. Um, how do we navigate the change? That's so well put. And of course, it's so funny because the, in our work, and if I may, <laughs> the words change and transition can often probably get thrown around the way like awesome does and, you know, football or something. I don't know. And like long run. I don't know. It just, it, it, those, these are words I think that get, so, so I think even in my understanding of your work, I took a little bit of that word transition for granted. I was thinking, oh yeah, yeah. Transitions happen all the time. But in fact, I was you know, cognizing that incorrectly because I kind of skipped over the change part and kind of dumped the word change into the word transition. So I really appreciate your articulating that. And so there are kind of two ways I want to go with my questioning. Let me try this one <laughs> because this is what I know about you and about Sarah. One of the things that I just profoundly admire about both of you is your dedication to the inner work and how much time you've both devoted to becoming quiet and still, to observe the inner world, to understand its, to, to be absorbed in its intelligence and to, you know, comport that 
or export that, you know, outside of yourself into the reality around you. You've, my experience of you both is that you always radiate it the way you've raised your daughter demonstrates that. I mean, there's just so many ways that I think you're, you are such, both of you such, um, just the high level of meditative and like stillness awareness. And I do mean all of those words the way I sort of presented them. So when you discovered this work for yourself now, how do you bring in your wisdom tradition work, including yoga and certainly all of this meditation, you know, retreating that you've done? How do you apply it? How do you, when you work with people that aren't so skilled at this or haven't done it as long, how, how do you connect those dots? That's, uh, that's kind of an enormous question. So let me see if I can. I know. Um, I don't ask them I small. I'm so <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. It's just unfortunately yes. the way I do it. <laughs> so I think also because of my, my longstanding training in Buddhism, where you're trained, you know, once you're teaching that you're seeing people one-on-one in a quasi-therapeutic way, and you're really encouraged early on to just listen. So rather than uh, offering advice, of course, that, that is what people are generally asking you for. But before you offer your advice to really um, try and shed all aspects of this is how I think you should be, or this should be, and see if you can begin to rest there. So it's it's a kind of meeting people where they are, and and this also dovetails with internal family systems work that you you know Sarah and I both do, which is the idea that each of us um, has the wisdom that we need. It's in there somewhere. Um, the processes of our own life. <laughs> the things that we've encountered already um, can conspire to have us know ourselves in a, in a much deeper way than we might allow ourselves. And so again, rather than just um, seeing a, a flaw or a problem or something to be fixed to really begin to know that the, the wisdom needed is already buried inside there some, some way, and then to offer the right series of questions in order for the person to arrive at that for themselves. So that's, and that's a, that's a fine line to walk. But, you know, over time, we've been doing this a long time. I've been doing this for, what, <laughs> 40 years? So just a few. So there's, I, I've, I've garnered my 10,000 hours in terms of, being able as much as possible, again, coming back to IFS, the, the idea with IFS is get out of the way. So there's an acronym that we've all heard, WAIT, why am I talking, which is really important in, in the IFS model, that you're really just seeing what's going on over there and just waiting instead of trying to jump in and have your own sense of what agency is around helping, right? So that's an agenda. And see if you can, as much as possible, relax your agenda for how this should go and be curious. So curiosity becomes over. Yeah, which is you modeling that curiosity then. I'm so interested in this idea that of the difference between the block, the problem, the thing that I'm focusing on as, you know, your student or patient that's, you know, um, torturing me in my life or obstructing me or, you know, disturbing me in one way or another. And the innate or internal source or sourcing that I have that you without this agenda or shedding this agenda are helping me see like could you give me an example of how how you maybe not with one person but just how you would get underneath that and talk to that thing that's inside the person that is is it sourced from their 
genetic family tree or in this internal family system? Where is it? Where, where does it live? Where, where does this intelligence live, really? So in the internal family systems model, it's, it's not entirely unlike the Buddhist model, which is there's an essence self, and that essence self is free. Uh, it's, it's, it's knowing, it's luminous, it's open, etc. And so in the IFS model, that essence self is called self with a big S. And what that self is anal analogous to the, um, the thing I like to point towards that might be helpful with that is if you think of a benevolent king or queen there, Benevolence arises from you know, a deep sense of caring and love for the realm. And so if you kind of imagine that now the, the realm is coming to them for help. So let's say it's um, all the knights are coming to the round table, female knights as well. Um, they've all, they're all coming from their various fiefdoms. They all have their worldviews or perspectives based on their myopic a vision of the realm. And so the benevolent king or queen knows that, but they also keep in mind that there's an essence nature, a realm nature that has to be responded to in the particulars of what each person is bringing or each person's particular limitation in terms of their view. And so for working with someone, one of the first things I attempt to do is to get people to become familiar with what views are operating at any given time and what views are being brought to bear on whatever the issue is that they're bringing. And so that becomes what's called parts work because in this language, the idea is that there are various, there's this essence self and then there's these various sub-personalities called parts and they all have their views and their views are tenured essentially and their views come from our various conditionings. They are, they're from our, our race, our, our nation, uh, our gender, and so on. And so all of these parts are kind of replicating all of those things, including mom, dad, or whoever the primary caregivers were, brothers, sisters, teachers. All that is kind of in there around the round table, going back to that. And so... To the extent that each of those um, fiefdoms, fiefdoms are in some sort of dialogue and communication and understand each other, to that extent, there'll be a kind of integrity to the realm. And it's up to the, so yeah, it's up to the king or queen to kind of um, hold space for all of those perspectives equally or... or not taking sides, uh -huh. not uh -huh. taking sides. And so you feel like there is a benevolent entity in charge. And once you feel that there is that, that kind of, well, okay, something is holding court here. Something that is the ultimate judge, as it were, and, and neutral and loving, understands me, understands my limitations, addresses me with respect. Because there's, uh, in terms of this internal family systems, there are parts of us we don't really respect, we don't really like. And so we exile those parts is how it's called in the language. And the exiling doesn't really work. <laughs> the parts get st actually stronger internally if we don't face them and bring them to the table, hear what they have to say. And then part of my work, going back to how this actually works, is to find out why one is afraid to listen to that part. And so that becomes a whole process in the session of getting the person to really listen why, to why the part feels the way it does, what happened to it. And very often, we don't want to hear, as I said, those parts. And so we try and shut them down. You can't say that. You can't be here. You can't feel that. There's a kind of bullying and a shaming that goes on from part to part. And so to, to get some sense of being able to listen without all that noise going on begins to allow the parts to have some integrity within themselves and then become a little more aligned with the, the, the worldview, as it were, of the round table. So that's, that's 
Such fun work, Kim. Such powerful work. Because, of course, as we're all human, as you're listening to various parts, I have parts. The parts are being triggered as I'm listening and working with the part of me that's triggered now around what's going on here and trying to relax that so I can be of service and not be, right, now too, too much in it. So that now I'm actually trying to steer it because of my own fears or trepidations and so on. So again, it's funny, is this whole conversation going to be like bifurcating in my mind? Because there's two different questions again I want to ask. So I'm thinking a little bit about the, 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 the modern model of yoga, which most of us listening have some or a lot of orientation to. And I sort of reductively say modern model when I mean the contemplative practice of exploring movements of the body, movements of the breath, and what those things together feel like and how they rise up and out of you and have any significance in the rest of your life and your personal relationships and the way you relate to the world in if you become a teacher, how you relate to students and what it's really interesting listening to you talk about relaxing those parts of you that get, you know, triggered in a situation. I mean, how, how much you have to put yourself aside, this low self, I guess, when you're teaching is what I'm thinking. So I guess the question I have is, I wonder, I, I don't know if people listening or if you have had this experience practicing in the physiological exploration of yoga things. But my experience... Oh, oh. oh go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, if I, if I think I know what you're asking me, I think the, the practice of yoga asana mingled with the practice of mindful attention is designed to put, put us in touch with all of those things that we try to um, rise above, as it were. So staying in the head center. And so I think yoga asana is just extraordinary as is meditation for allowing us the time and space to begin to explore through the breath with the various ways we try and escape the discomfort of being human. And the more we practice being able to stay where we intend to stay when it gets uncomfortable, the more we are indeed able to just be with it, embrace it, and watch it, watch it change, watch its periodicity, watch what happens in the body as a result of a certain thought that be, that turns into a feeling, which suddenly, physiologically speaking, we're, we're off now, we're gone, we're not here anymore, we're not present, we're not awake. <laughs> and so all that stuff, to begin to watch how that works, to begin to break that down, to begin to know that you can break it down, to begin to know maybe most importantly, that you can be with it, that you can tolerate it. Because the whole point of running away is there's some sense that I, I can't, I can't do it. Is it too painful or, it's, or whatever it is that your story is about it. Yeah. And so Subsumed, getting us yeah. to recognize, yes, how much capacity. So I like to say that this kind of work really builds capacity, capacity to be with. To, to be with... I just see if I can like put it into words as though you're not, <laughs> but, to, but to be with, because I keep, I keep also, or I'm thinking about going to that, to what I was really taken by in your skillful transitions work, change in transitions work, the values that sort of values that, this system helps you discover. So the difference between oh, difference between your beliefs, like false and true about yourself, is that what you learn to stay with that then helps you navigate to use the word again and establish these through lines to your real values, like of living. Is that right. a uh, well? So uh, let me start by saying, uh, just in terms of the, of the worldview that I have, when I think of well-being. 
I think of well-being as being a manifestation of living your values, of actually experiencing those values on a day-to-day basis. And so to the extent that those values are working for you, you will feel happy, sad throughout the entire spectrum of human emotion. You will feel like you are in the place you need to be. You're standing in the center of your life as you value it. And whatever's arising is a result of what should be arising because you are living your values. And so getting people to to understand what their values are, because very often what we're doing, especially as we're all conditioned, is there are values we, we might hold on to that are from our culture or our parents, our gender, all that stuff, again, that, that may not be of the most skillful value at this point in our lives, perhaps never were, but we've just unconsciously adopted them. And if we don't know they're there as an unconscious belief system, because that's, that's how they manifest, they will be controlling the narrative. And so in order for us to gain more um, of an embrace of the narrative, of our own narrative, we've had to know ourselves. And to know ourselves is to know what we, what we think, what we believe, what feels um, of value to us. And just starting there starts us on the path of intending to live our values. And in that intention, the values do show up as, as, as living entities. And we'll see in the living of it is, is this still the right value? Is this right? So rather than kind of trying to preempt what the value should be, just know what your values are now. Imagine how you'd like to see those values implemented in your life. Go for it. Live that and just see just at that point. That's, that's the, the creative quality of being human and the creative quality of change. Here it is. All right, this value was really valuable 20 years ago. It's not so valuable now. Okay, so how am I going to change that? Well, what, what do I need to bring to bear in order for that? to shift as needed, given the new values that are coming online as a result of this new knowledge. Yeah, like that. So I mean, it, I mean, it's so interesting listening to you describe this because you're really calling for courageous people, people with lots of courage, I think, because everything you're describing to me, well, maybe I'm just talking about, I don't know if I'm just talking about, sounds really scary. I mean, really kind of terrifying to face you know, these, uh, these ways of living that, let me back up a step and say, because I'm, I'm kind of layering what I'm saying. Maybe I feel like I'm, live, I'm sort of sitting underneath an umbrella of post-COVID and how much change occurred for everyone, regardless of, um, not regardless, occurred for everyone. And it seems to me that everyone is on some different path of being able to li- articulate and live out the uh, conclusions is too strong a word, but the discoveries that so many of us made, both very good and very dark and terrible during that time because it seems to me that COVID was an accelerant of the knowledge of so much suffering on the planet that we all knew was there on some level, especially, again, back to my first question, those of us who are these kind of inner discoverers, inner adventurers looking at ourselves because I guess... My feeling is that there's this external thing, this virus, you know, that sort of shows up and just alters the course of human history for real, it seems to me. I mean, maybe every day, maybe maybe the whole idea in these existential paths is that every day is an opportunity to witness the change of human history. I guess you could maybe say that, but it seems to me that co- it's not difficult to talk about COVID is this profound earth shift. And I don't, I guess the thing I keep going back to is how could we witness all of this change happening outside without 
understanding that it's also happening inside because as above, so below, as without, so within. I, I guess I see those connections everywhere all the time and maybe don't understand how to distinguish between those. So I'm, I'm a little in the brambles of my question, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but no, I'm I, sort of, yeah, maybe I, you can pick up and help yeah, me make sense I, of what I, I just said. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think there is something about on the, on the beautiful end of the, of the scientific revolution, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. really needing to see cause and effect on a surface level in order to believe um, what's underneath. And so in some sense, that revolution has made us more um, skeptical of spirituality, of belief um, residing underneath manifest reality. And, And so the pandemic really, well, first of all, I think it did what we've all been trying to do as practitioners, which is quiet things down enough, quiet the distractions down enough to see what's actually there. Because as we all so well know, (laughs) the modern world just has enough wonderful distractions to keep yourself from diving down underneath what's actually going on beyond those distractions. And so if, if I, if I think I, I've got the heart of your question, what did things like COVID do for the rest of us? Well, first of all, am I in there in terms of what you were asking? Yes. Yes. Uh, it, it gave the rest of the world who were thinking along more linear lines Time to reflect again, maybe coming back to values. So what do I care about most? If, if there's this potential for the world to turn itself upside down like that, I never thought that was going to happen. So many of us didn't. Really? Or could happen. You, did, you didn't could either? Happen. Really? It, it surprised you too? Yeah it's, yeah, it's funny because we have, a, we have a close friend who's an epidemiologist. And this was right around Christmas 2019. Was it 2020 where it really, things that really took off? Yeah, 2019 was when, I mean, it's COVID-19. It was there. It was in it, it was, even it, in December. We were already in it, in so maybe maybe it was the year before then. Well, no, I mean, I just I just mean COVID emerged in China in December 2019, but we, I don't know, I'm sure where you were, but in the United States, we weren't quite there until March of 2020. So we were in London, and this this um, this gentleman is an epidemiologist, epidemiologist there. And he sat us down and we were talking about our plans for the next couple of years and whatnot. He's like, you're not going anywhere. And I remember thinking, um, wow, I never thought of my friend as an alarmist. I, 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 both said I walked away from that dinner like, wow, we're going to carry on. Okay. I mean, I understand why he might be having those feelings, his own fears. And, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then, of course, the world <laughs> turned out to to operate in just the fashion he indicated. So uh, hopefully we don't need more examples like that for (laughs) us to. So one of the Uh, things that Sarah and I do now, we were doing it before, but I think it's become more urgent since, since then. Every January one, we ask ourselves if we had a year to live, how would we live it? Mm, We do, mm. we do a whole ritual around it. And it's, it's a profound thing to do. I mean, obviously you can't do it the way it would really be done because you, you might drop everything, right? <laughs> if you knew you actually only had a year to live. Yeah, but in, right. in the context of being able to, to do the, the thought experiment, it's really clarifying for, so what needs to go? What, what's most important? What are the values now? Uh, and how can we bring ourselves closer to being that, living in that, experiencing that mostly? And I think things like the pandemic really helped a lot of people do get, something get, like that. Get right? clear about that, and which yeah. is why yeah. so many of us, I think, are working at home now. It's like, wait, no, I want to be home. I want to be more with family. I don't want to work so hard. That many hours in the car or whatever that might be. So I, I see a lot of positive benefits as well as all the, the struggle and suffering that came out of COVID. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, in, in some ways, of course, it's not even as easy as to say, oh, there's so much suffering that came out of COVID. There's so much suffering as we went into COVID. I think that as we, it's, it's just so- interesting to look, right? It, it, it's interesting to look at, back at 2020 and, and the amount of energy that people had like packed in themselves that they, I mean, of course I had this like, you know, again, along with the bifurcation, (laughs) which is just, makes me seem so facile really. But at the very beginning of the pandemic, I was like, it's the return to the matriarchy. It's a familial like resurgence because, you know, we're, um, able now to go back into the home in a more almost agrarian way. And I just, I was, had this, I had just really a lot, and this is just in March, I was having these, you know, thoughts that we finally were going to be able to just slow down the, I don't know, really unhealthy pace of the demands of late stage capitalism. And I don't know where we are with that at this moment, because it's so funny with living here in Denver, when we came here, it was 2021 Mm -hmm. and we visited a couple of times. This is like, you know, the height of the pandemic really. And things were so quiet. You know, there's nobody on the streets. There was nobody driving around. Traffic was nothing. And we live kind of not quite near downtown, but not far away, kind of pretty close. And so every, every, you know, and in, in Denver, maybe this way in Portugal too, most of the year you have your windows open. I mean, just all, I mean, right now we sleep with our windows open every night. So every night I go to bed and I listen to the, to how the sounds are just every night increasing. Like and every night is dramatic, but like on increments of time, every quarter, every month, whatever, just we're back. We're back to the pace. We're back to the, or I hear it anyway. And I, and again, I'm projecting that. I understand that's me and my relationship to sound, but it's so interesting to have been so new to a place and be in this really kind of different brain space where there's not much about this street or that street or this person or that person or this relationship or that relationship or this school or anything that I take for granted. I'm just learning, you know, all the time here after 20 years of living elsewhere. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm sure you understand because I know you all have been on the move a lot yourselves. It's just interesting to hear the speed and the sound come back. And I wonder what the job is as a practitioner in that space and like in this conversation, like what to tease out there. So in, in the journey of change, there's, there's certain beats to it. And one of the beats is how fear and uncertainty um, arises in that journey and how we respond to it, and if we respond appropriately to whatever the particulars are of that for us, we will begin to accelerate into the transformation around the change. But as part of that cycle, as we get forced to transform, um, fear and uncertainty arises again. Uh, It may be more subtle at that second level, but it's there. And so what it tends to do cyclically is it tends to push us back towards the old ways of being and thinking and valuing and beliefs. And so we kind of go back and go, you know, this wasn't so bad. And this is maybe what you're describing about the world. It's like we're going to go back to doing everything we were doing before the pandemic without. And I think there's enough of us out there who really did get the message. There's enough who did, and and there are enough distractions, enough very real and powerful and important distractions, which I wouldn't necessarily call just distractions like the Ukraine uh, and like the Middle East, that that are going to keep us, you know, in present moment awareness around what needs to be attended to, like a pandemic. So. Uh, yeah, it's we're going to see. I think both. It's it's both. People are going to go back because it's too painful to really embrace all that's going on, and so <laughs> my distractions are my refuge. And but 
temporary, but, uh, right? They're yeah, not well, though. It, but it, yeah, but the feeling is this is what I feel like now. And yeah. I need to antidote this feeling now. I, yeah, it's great to think about the future and to do what I need to do to, to make the future I'd like to see arise. But for right now, you know, give me that ice cream. Or whatever I would say now be. there's the right. And now there's the scroll stop. The Instagram, you know, is sort of, is that, that's what you're saying, right? Yeah. Whatever it is that. Yeah. Whatever it is. Yeah. The attraction to staying busy. To staying away from the deeper aspects of being because they can bring us into alignment with what we don't want and what we don't like. And rather than work with that, it's just easier to start another Netflix film. Yeah, right. Right. And then, yeah. And I'm not putting that yeah, down because I have no, my own, totally. I have my own ways of doing that. I have my my switch off moments where okay it's i'm not practicing now of course i am but i'm really i'm having my glass of wine now you know whatever that might be i am not attempting to be as mindful as i might attempt to be or want to be in in moments of deep practice and i'm kind of holding that in the spectrum of being rather than making it lesser than it's like it's almost like a needed uh, aspect that you know we're intense for a moment and then we just kind of relax into being and maybe that's a good thing to to talk about here too because it's something i've really been working a lot with people lately on which is to remind them that there is something called beingness which is not the result of causes and conditions and if you don't know that there's a a place like that or a state of awareness a state of being that is just being that's that's causeless you're going to continue to do all the things you think you know how to do to antidote all the ways you don't feel like you're in being. So <laughs> the idea that being is a state that we can enter and relax in, just to know that, first of all, I mean, there's a little bit of feeling that just as I say it, right? You can see it on your face. We can we can know that, and it's it is a, um, an awareness that doesn't need. It's an isness. All the all the various descriptions over the, the millennia around it. This is this is the suchness of being. And if we know that as the backdrop, we begin to really know that's the backdrop. Then we can enter the foreground with all the the machinations. Noise. Of that. Yeah, all the yeah. noise, and just be with the noise, knowing. The backdrop's always waiting for us. That that clear and open and compassionate, loving, infinite face of being is there waiting. And so to begin to point people towards how they can access that through the quiet um, is also a way of giving them a different kind of refuge than just achieving any number of things, including achieving enlightenment. <laughs> right, exactly. I was. I, it, I'm really glad you used the word quiet because I've been thinking about bringing in a question or this inquiry around a book I'm reading now. Have you heard of the book? It's called A Book of Silence. I've seen it. I haven't. Alex gave it to me like years ago. He was like, I gave it to you before Madeline was born. You know, she's 14. But I have some like drawing of hers of, you know, for when she was really little drawing herself being older. It's so cute. It's like my bookmark. I was like, no, I definitely, you gave it to me when she was who knows what age, but it's been probably 10 years. And I've obviously, and through my questions, been interested in noise and silence. And so anyway, she is in the book at this moment that where I'm at describing, you know, the, the, you know, the heart of Zen or the Zen of Zen, which is, it's indescribable, you know, difficult to, uh, I mean, the, the whole point of it is that it is not something you can land on and stay within because it continues to, um, not, fold in on it. It's not an attainment. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. It's not an attainment. 
And so the, the, the book itself is really a memoir of her attempt. She's in her, so in her 70s, I guess. It's a memoir of her attempts once her son went away to school where she, in, in, in the words are right there, I was free <laughs> to then explore, you know, whatever she wanted and what, it, what she wanted to explore was silence. And so she... Getting back to your question about, or question, sorry, the statement you were making about the scientific re, re, uh, revolution, scientific resolution is what I almost said. <laughs> I don't think we've resolved much. <laughs> um, um, and so I, I, I kind of want to pin that or pull some things out there and connect what you said and what I'm you know, learning from her. Her claim is that forever, from the beginning of time, we have created mythologies and archetypes and stories around nature and the sun and the moon, just very simply, as being like evidentiaries of life and death, that the dark is death and the light is life. And so if you were, as you were, we were these emerging humans having no real sense of time and knowing whether tomorrow was going to look like today, whether the sun was really going to come, the cyclicality of the, you know, the planet, whether or not the sun was really going to return and we weren't all going to die at night because the dark is death, is what drives us. Like fundamentally from a deep source of our, you know, primordial brain, the fear of death, the fear of the darkness is the thing that's you know, sort of champing at our bits all the time. So she goes on to say that with the scientific revolution, the scientific resolution, we were able to enumerate these truths and align the explanation of why we're not going to die with numbers and research and the the undergirding of what it is we do when we measure truth. And so she's saying that in this age, we've come so far over that bell curve of explaining to ourselves truth that we've lost spirituality, we've lost belief, because really we're holding on to this science or scientific revolution, all that it brought, including the information age, as a means of distracting ourselves from the real fear that we're gonna die. And what happens when the darkness does not turn back into light? And so it, in, in your description, in your work, in the life changes work. You talk a lot about the seasons and how we live in this way. I think I understood your description where we're sort of divested from these cycles of nature and cycles of change. And so I just want to connect this recent learning I've had on exploring silence that my amazing husband gave me years ago, knowing that somehow I would arrive back at this book (laughs) And what you're teaching people and how we can through these various wisdom practices, this is the thing I love about this podcast, is it not, it's not just about what yoga we can do. It's about what contemplative work we can do in this inner stillness to connect with joy, you know, just enduring, abiding peace that we can then, I don't know, keep for ourselves, give to our families, like kiss the daughter goodbye or you know, bring out into the larger world the way you and Sarah are doing. Mm. You know, the word that keeps coming back, of course, is love. Just um, like really coming back to our deep humanness, recognizing that we are in in the most exalted sense of the word, animals, and that we respond to the world as as a living world, like an animal. You're mentioning the seasons. I think I mentioned in the article that I wrote about the fact that 
the seasons have largely been taken out of our hands because of the modern scientific world. There's lights that can be on 24 seven now. And so, and in some, in some places you can have warmth all year round or whatever that might be, or you could at least see it. And so there's, there's not a sense of what's required in what season. And so there's something about finding out what that is for you. What, what season of life are you in? Cause it's a different season when you don't have kids or when you do different when you're 40, different when you're 60 and so on. And so what's, what's required of you as this planet earth animal, this beautiful human species, what's required of you to really know all of that for yourself directly. And so I think I was also saying that part of the scientific revolution that's not giving us all we need is it's giving us this sense of there's more information to be had. And yes, of course there is. We will continue to grow and change, technologically speaking, scientifically speaking, medicine and so on. And that's really great. But it doesn't necessarily point us, since it's it's inexorably pointing us towards all these great things that are going to happen scientifically going forward, it doesn't point us back towards all that's underneath that with our humanness. It actually, it seems to me at least, it seems to me at least, it's inspiring more thinking, inspiring more knowledge, and less beingness. And so to really begin to try and um, bring that balance back. And that's what I thought, and you mentioned that too, that something like COVID could do. It could, and it did to a certain extent. We were in London at that time and just looking out on, we were living on a major uh, street and looking out on that street, the sounds, the sounds of birds that came back, the foxes running through streets that they do not totally. run through now. And so, totally. on. so this whole sense yeah. of nature coming back and this sense of moving, which I always like to talk about when I teach retreat, how we don't, how we've been encouraged not to move at the speed of our body because the speed of thinking and the speed of the mind is you know, beyond the speed of light. So it's, we can be anywhere in an instant. And sometimes that being anywhere in an instant, kind of overriding the needs of the body, it's moving too fast. It's the body feels frustrated by that. It's almost as if the mind is subordinating, the thinking is subordinating the body to its speed, which is not a human speed. And so the quiet has the potential, if we know how to get there, know how to place ourselves in scenarios, we can engage quiet that we can come back to the speed of being an animal, you know, combined with this magnificent thing called intellect and creativity, which separates us. Right. Yeah. That's so, so beautiful. It's so true. I hadn't, yeah, yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. totally, yeah, and that makes me think as we, you know, conscious of your time and, um, mm-hmm. Thinking about the algorithm, <laughs> which will notice us if we're under an hour, right? <laughs> and on that note, I will say that I don't. I mean, I'm. I, I've been obviously thinking a lot about AI lately. I quite enjoy talking to Chat GPT. I I, I, I take my time with because I'm like, <laughs> Chat GPT is so nice. <laughs> it says such nice things to me when I, and so I mean, really, it's a little, it's a, but but I, but it feels like such a relief, such a relief that AI, the Chat GPT can just answer these questions I have so quickly. With some accuracy, some inaccuracies, some I've had some conversations with ChatGPT about yoga, <laughs> you know, just sort of up bringing the database up to date because it because you know the sort of way to define modern yoga as I have experienced it on ChatGPT is not quite reflective of where some of us are. So it's mm. been very interesting to just sort of 
observe the misalignments of description of modern yoga as just being about yoga asana. That's sort of one of the things that kind of pulled through on the threads, mm-hmm. by the way. So I think everyone listening needs to go to talk to Jeff GPT and give a bunch of links of our work. <laughs> just to start, just to say FYI, you know, there, uh-huh. this uh-huh. could go into the database of what you're going to offer in 2025 or whatever. Because, uh, obviously it's a program. So yes, it's only going right. to get out what's been put in. Exactly. And so that's what I mean about it being a relief because AI isn't, I don't think, maybe I sound like a total neophyte, but AI can't tell me what's happening inside of me. There's no way I'm going to have, I, I, maybe not no way, but I'm not, I, my brain is stretched to its limits as I think at the moment of, if I sit in my own room and you know, I stare into the blackness of the morning every morning, I do, that's the only time I have as a working parent, you know. Um, there's no AI interact. There's nothing there. There's just there's just there's just it. This the beingness, right? Well, to round to round our conversation out, just yeah. There's something about where AI is going to take us. Uh, it's going to relieve us yeah. of the burden of of information seeking, and I think in in the good way, it's going to throw us back to okay, now what now? So what is what is being human? What does that mean? What do I do with that? In the bad, what do you think? Like, in other words, what? Like, what's oh, you the, know, the thing? The things that the things that everyone is talking about now. So, so how out of control that AI could potentially get? You know, I don't, I don't uh, subscribe to that being our our reality. But it, but it's there. A lot smarter people who've been looking at this question a lot longer are are really fearful of yeah, where worried. we could take this. Yeah, yeah, we. And that's the that's the key word, is it not? Where we consent to take it. Where we well, I mean, the one thing, the bad thing, of course, will be what is truth. The fact that AI is going to be able to produce my voice, produce my likeness with my voice, right? Saying things I never said. That's true. Places I've never been. So things like that are going to be really tricky going forward. And and hopefully, by the time we get to that point, there we will be some measures to. To give us some indication of which thing is actually happening here. Yeah, what's that? That's really true. saying that. <laughs> or, or, that's true. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's so, it's so interesting. You know, mindfulness awareness in the age of AI. Actually, I mean, that kind of is a speaking of back to the first question I made. Like the through line makes me think about that. Well, and so to to really truly land the plane, the thing that I loved hearing Sarah say not just what she said, but how she said it, which is, oh no, we're totally IRL. <laughs> we, we do these workshops, we do these, these things like in person. And I'd love to learn a little bit about or have you just tell the audience, we'll have all the links in the show notes of you're leading a retreat in Italy in a, in yeah, a few days. That we're leading in a few days. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a week-long silent retreat. And what we've been doing on these retreats in Italy in particular is going through the classic um, Buddhist mind training, so-called the Lojong. It's seven points of mind training and there's 59 slogans in it. You probably know something about it. And they're just really beautiful, pithy ways to conduct a life, to, to refer to, to keep you on track, to keep your mind um, where it should be, which is in alignment with the body, not in uh, opposition to. So the silence so there we are again, the theme of silence, being able to calm down enough to feel gathered as a, as a fully realized animal, yeah. <laughs> feeling your feet, feeling your breath, not just feeling your thoughts and emotions. So we do retreats. We see people, as you heard from Sarah, one-on-one, working in, with various themes from Buddhists to IFS, internal family systems, to this change and transition model. And that's our work, and it feels really rich, and we feel really blessed to have it. Yeah, uh, there's no question that we're all blessed to know you and to know about this work. And um, I've had a lot of feedback, people so happy to learn about your work and 
sort of just, again, rediscover it. The other thing that happened for this podcast and the work that I started doing way back in 20, whatever it was, on yoga lineages and just a discovery of what it is and why or whether it matters and how to bring teachings like this, conversations like you and I have had to newer or younger practitioners or even those who have been out there for a minute but haven't um, been thinking about or experiencing practice the way you've described. So I really appreciate your time and it's just so great to see you again. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Thanks for asking. Oh, I'm so glad I did. All right, we'll talk soon. I hope so. Thank you for listening to this podcast. It was produced by Alyssa Yaroshevsky and me and features original music from my former band, Governess. We're on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, on weekswell.com and have a newsletter. And we're also now most recently on Substack, exploring in as many media as we can the conversation practice and community of being your best self. If you have any ideas on the week's well about guests, about feedback on the show, anything you'd like to know or talk about or dialogue about hit us up at hello at weekswell.com. We love the feedback. We love the conversation. We hope to see you next time for the next episode of the week's well next week.